As long as you have love, you're going to be all right. You have a secret that most people have not discovered yet. Being content, being satisfied with who you are and what you possess. It's of no interest to say you're 65, but i got to say goodbye at the same time. That hurts. Welcome to Elder Wisdom, Stories from the Green Bench. This is a podcast for and about seniors, exploring love, loss, hope, life, tragedy, triumph, and so much more. I get to be your host for this bi-weekly podcast. My name is Erin Davis. Schlegel Village's retirement and long-term care homes makes and takes this opportunity to shine a light on the lives of some people you might just see sitting on one of Schlegel's green benches, connecting, chatting, or just enjoying each other's company. Here we talk about the past, embrace the present, and look with optimism to the future. And boy, do we hear stories. Dr. Ray Brown has had a career nothing short of remarkable. From growing up with a critically ill brother to finding himself in the world of medicine, surrounded by pro athletes and names you know, and even on one fateful night in Montreal, helping to save several young women's lives after the massacre at École Polytechnique. Dr. Brown lives at the village of Humber Heights in Etobicoke, Ontario, and is joined today by a gentleman who has kindly stepped in while my usual and beloved co-host, Lloyd Hetherington, recovers from some long-awaited surgery. We love you, Lloyd, and our thoughts are with you every day, my friend. In our co-host spot this episode is Doug Reed. He's 83, and if the name's familiar, there's a good reason why. You met him in Episode 9 of Elder Wisdom. He talked about life in the media and giving back through the Salvation Army. Doug lives with his wife, Nell, in the village of Arbor Trails in Guelph. And it's from here that he joins us today as we have a fascinating chat with Dr. Ray Brown, one of the very few Canadians to have received an award from the American College of Surgery. Well, Doug, thank you for coming in on short notice and sitting in in Lloyd's spot on the green bench today. We're really thrilled to have you, and I know that Lloyd is listening and wishing you all the best today. So good luck, my friend. Well, thank you very much. And boy, oh boy, do I ever have big shoes to fill. (laughs) He has the old Salvation Army boots, so he's got about a size 12, and I'm only a size 8, but I'll do my very best. I know you will, and you've both worn those Salvation Army shoes in one way or another and boots over the years, so it's a pleasure to have you here, Doug. And we are equally thrilled to have Dr. Ray Brown joining us here from the village of Humber Heights in Etobicoke. Dr. Ray, thank you for making time for us today. Well, I could not missed to get the attention. (laughs) (laughs) The patients will see you now. So we've got so much to talk about. What a storied career that you have. But we're always fascinated with origins and sometimes just the signs or the events that point you toward your life's work, your life's passion, and how you got into sports medicine and medicine in general. Tell us about your brother's diagnosis and his life-saving treatment that really sent you on your way, won't you? My brother 
became quite ill in not, about 1941 with pneumonia. Unfortunately, the pneumonia went on to the dreaded complication of empyema. At that particular time, they had no antibiotics or anything. And my brother eventually was sent to the Brockville General Hospital. He was slowly just getting worse and worse, and he had a high fever almost every day. We were not too cognizant of what was available or wasn't available, but anyways, my brother did not get better. And over the next two and a half years, he had a surgeon, Dr. Archibald Sturt, and he did everything possible and did anything that was ever recorded to try to erase that terrible disease, and he had no luck. VE Day was coming around the corner. Everybody knew it, but they didn't know what day. Uh, and my aunt got a letter from her sister who lived in Virginia. And the sister told her about a new antibiotic that was now going to become available because the war was over. And it would be freed up before it had been kept for the armies and Air Force, Navy care in England and, and the United States. And what what's the medicine? Right after the war, penicillin, the penicillin we know today, um, became available. The arrangement was made for to take my brother back to Montreal. He was really uh, a shadow of himself, uh, and we were, you know, expecting the worst. And one early morning, and lo and behold, that was VE Day. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Victory in so many ways. My father got caught in all the bells and whistles and yells and screams. Oh. But somehow he got my brother delivered to the Montreal Western Hospital. And one week later, my brother came home on the train. Wow. And he told us all about this terrible antibiotic he had. But, oh, did it hurt. <laughs> but he said, do I feel a lot better? And two days later, he came down one morning and said to my mom, guess what? I'm cured. <laughs> oh, my. And he what was. a moment for your family. As Lloyd would say, hallelujah. He was, mm -hmm. yeah, hallelujah choir. So... That was my first big experience with medicine as a kid. I told you that my first successful surgery was on a cob of corn. Yeah. <laughs> when I when, when I removed two kernels with a little piece of wood and the corner and the cob looked okay. <laughs> oh. That was just goodness. I was dreaming. I had no time no thoughts of then ever going into medicine. I went to school, and, but I was a terrible student. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Eventually, my father and mother decided to take me out of the public school in Cardinal to the one-room school in the country where they had a wonderful teacher that everybody knew was tremendous. So off I was taken, and Mrs. Encamp immediately knew how to make me like school. Because I like to play, play, play. <laughs> and Mrs. McCamp said, right, no play. You've got to do all your lessons. You've got to pass. Then you can play. 
And that's when my education life turned around. The second thing so important in my life was each month we used to get a box of books from the Ontario Department of Education because we had no library. There was 28 of us, and then the first time we all lined up and I was the 28th, I wasn't interested in getting any old book. <laughs> Anyways, I got finally up to the books and Mrs. McCamp gave me three. I said, woo. He said, I want in a week's time a little summary from all those books you read. If you don't get it done in a week, do it in two. So I took the books home, not very happy that I had to take and read a book. That was bad. But I took it home, <laughs> and I start to read it. And reading is when the thing I loved even to the day. <laughs> I just love to read. Dr. Ray, do you remember what that book was? I have tried my damnedest, and I can't remember. My, my Part of my brain is gone. <laughs> oh, that's okay. You filled it with a lot over the years, because that is an incredible start. And then as we fast forward a little bit through to you bypassing veterinary school, getting into McGill, and again, the, what you learned in that schoolhouse, you wanted to play, but you had to have good grades. And so they had to let you play football, didn't they? Yeah, well, in 1954, I, after I had been turned down from going into vet school because I didn't have upper school French, McGill took me and I went to McGill I wanted to do two things at McGill when I went. One, I wanted to get a degree, and two, I wanted to learn to play football. I don't know why that, but that's what I wanted. Over the years, I, I made it through McGill and science and got good marks in my final year, 1957, and uh, I learned to play football because I became the the all-star middle guard in the intercollegiate league and the most improved football player at McGill. Wow. So I was on my way. Anyways, when I got the last year of McGill, I didn't know what I was going to do. I was 1957. I got drafted by the Tiger Cats. I didn't want to play professional football because I thought I was not good enough. And I went and talked to my old coach, Larry Sullivan. And I told him that I didn't want to be a dentist. I didn't want to be a lawyer. I didn't want to be a teacher. But I thought I might like to be a doctor. But I said, I'm not smart enough to be that. He looked at me very carefully and said, nobody ever says that to me. <laughs> he said, Ray, if you want to go into medicine, Go up the hill and get an application. I did. Finally, I got a letter from Miguel saying, Hey, you're part of the Miguel Faculty of Medicine Students for 1958. By the second year, I was doing really well. And the dean let me go back and play football. And in 1960, our team won the... Quebec Ontario League, the Big Four, and was the Churchill champions. It was my best year in medicine. There's a class of about 110 or 12, but I was 24th in the class, and I loved surgery. 
I had finally found what I wanted to do. Hmm. And I graduated in 1962, got an internship with the general. And then I applied again to enter the training program in surgery. Second year, when you were in that program, you went to the lab. And lo and behold, Dr. David Mulder, who has been the, the name of everybody at McGill and the hockey and chairman, everything, and I, we sent our research off to the American College of Surgeons, and it was unheard of. Uh, the, the, the Montreal General had ever had any papers accepted there. I finished my year in the lab, went, did my next year, and then the following year, I went to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and to Marquette University to work with the famous Dr. Allison of the Zollinger-Allison Syndrome. I love Milwaukee, and of course, they had a wonderful football team, which was even better. <laughs> yeah. Got to watch the Packers, I guess, yeah. huh? So I returned back in 1967 and 1968. I was the resident in surgery at the Montreal General. I wrote my fellowship exams the following year, and if you can believe it, I was the only Anglophone to pass the exams in Quebec. <laughs> well, I was going to ask about that, because if your lack of speaking French kept you out of veterinary school, the fact that you excelled and went on to so many great accolades and awards and such a storied career in Montreal is really notable. <laughs> Pure luck, I guess. Of course, your career segued into sports medicine and some of the yeah. incredible names and athletes that you crossed paths with. But there was also an extremely dark day, not only for you, but for all Canadians, one that is now remembered as the National Day of Remembrance and Action on Violence Against Women, White Ribbon Day. Yeah. It was, of course, December 6th, 1989. Right. And uh, the day of the massacre of 14 women at Montreal's École Polytechnique. If you can, Dr. Ray, can you take us through that night? Yeah. I was leaving the hospital... And lo and behold, the alarm went off that meant there was a terrible emergency in the emergency room. I knew that my boss, Mulder, was away, so I went as fast as I could to the emergency room, and everything was in chaos. Finally, I learned that there had been a terrible event at the University of Montreal, and that they were sending the survivors here to the Montreal General. Well... I used my experiences, I organized the place, got the blood bank ready, the elevators. I had a big fight with the people who didn't want to get off them. And I all went on and on, and the, all the radiology was ready, and I made six little beds with everything ready with a resident, assistant resident, two nurses, and an orderly. And boom, in the door, the, the poor girls come. I never saw anything like this in my life. The six girls were as white as white as paper is white sometimes. They were all in terrible pain. Anyways, fortunate for us, we were able to quickly get good 
control of their circulation with IVs and give them some medication. And one by one, we figured out which one had to go to the OR first, and that person went upstairs first. And in 45 minutes, they had all left. And to our credit of the ICU and the surgeons involved, all of them made it. It was a incredible thing. A few years later, the American College gave me an award for my work with advanced trauma life support and with that event. Not many Canadians have that. I'm pretty, pretty lucky. Anyways, the next day turned out to be an even blacker day, if you can believe it. The sister of one of my classmates who was a urologist at the general, his daughter who had went to John Abbott School and had been a classmate of my son's, was just one of the people killed. That took a few days to get over. It was nice that all the ones we got survived. And when I think back of it, how come an English institution got the six? Very simple. It was the only one that had paid attention to trauma. So all the girls survived. And in 1990, we became a level one trauma center in Montreal. And I was made director of it at the same time I was director of the general surgery. As things came on, I hit my first big episode with athletes. In 1986, after the Canadians had won the championship year before, one of their star players, <laughs> and I won't name him, came to camp and he had terrible, terrible groin pain. All the people involved with the Canadians and the Canadians had been looked after at our place since 1939, had never seen this before. And eventually he got to me and I said, hmm, I don't know what's wrong with you either, but the pain is the same pain that you get when you injure a nerve when you're repairing an inguinal hernia. Mm. Anyways, Dr. Mulder again had time to take this player down, freeze him, and get him to skate. And lo and behold, off he went, flying around the rink. No pain. But by the time he got back to the hospital, he was in real pain. <laughs> mm. So guess what? The next day, they came en masse and said, you have to operate on him. There's something terrible wrong. <laughs> and I didn't know what on earth was wrong. Anyways, I operated on him. And lo and behold, he had what I then looked after from that time to I retired. Sports hernia is a big tear in his external oblique with the ilium nerve caught up in an adhesion, and that nerve was the one that would give them all the pain in the world. Over the career after that, Dr. Nottmuller and I did 88 elite hockey players, 60-some of them were from the NHL. Players from all over the world come, and we 
put them together because we early on decided to use a patch of Gore-Tex to strengthen the abdominal wall. So we had a very successful career. At the same time, I became the doctor for the Montreal Alouettes. They then became the Concords when the ownership changed. And the third year, the general manager, Joe Gallat, was able to convince Turner Gill, one of the finest quarterbacks in the United States, who was from Nebraska, to come to Canada and play for the Alouettes. And lo and behold, on his second year, he was just about killed in a game against Edmonton. I remember him rushing him to the general. I thought, oh, will he make it? But he did. Post thing, he was went through a few days of really very dis disorientation and everything. And fortunately for me, he had been looked at once before at the general with a minor concussion by Dr. Bob Ford, a neurosurgeon. And at the end of the week, Bob came to me and said, Ray, Turner should be asked to step out from football. That had never been, <laughs> never been happened in the history of the CFL. <laughs> Anyways, I phoned the University of Nebraska because I knew the people there. And they said, yes, Turner had a terrible concussion when he was at the University of Nebraska. Oh. And he had seen a Dr. Bennett in Omaha, the chairman of the Department of Neurology, the only man at that time who had written a whole book on concussions. And he said, I'll arrange for Turner to go and see him. So he did. And uh, he spent two hours with Turner and then finally said to Turner and his wife, Turner, you have to quit professional football. And interesting enough, Turner Gill accepted that. Hmm. That was a big load off my heart. And so by 2000, all the years of teaching and everything was starting to catch up. <laughs> and I was made an honorary teacher in the, in McGill, and I had been voted by the residents in 1991, 1997, and 2000 as the teacher of the year. Mm. Anyways, that was quite good. Pretty good for a kid who didn't like school. <laughs> Imagine that. Imagine that. But he liked playing. Yes, he did. Anyways... Uh, uh, 2000, the McGill and the, the Quebec government were decided that they wanted to get people who were over 65 retired. So I re stayed retired after 2000, but I did general did surgery on the groin for another 11 years till I had to quit. And, and and among those that you treated, Dr. Ray, Claude Lemieux, Jean Beliveau, Doug yeah, Harvey. Okay. <laughs> I gotta mention Darcy Tucker for the for the Leaps fans who are listening. Yeah, gotta get I in one blue and white in there. Darcy Patrick Tucker. Patrick Wah. Yeah. Yeah, Max Pacioretty. Yeah. I know it's not fair to ask because it's like you have four kids, who's your favorite? But did you have a favorite patient? Well, the favorite patient is John Beliveau. Oh really? 
Really? Can I tell you a little story? Absolutely. When they fixed John Bellavo's hernia, one of the residents came to me after and said, Dr. Brown, my dad worships John Bellavo. Do you think he'd be upset if I asked him for his signature? I said, I'm sure he'd be happy. So the next morning, Anna went in, told John all the usual things, how are you, everything, and then said she would like if he could sign something for her father, who was one of his greatest fans. And he pulled out two pictures, signed it, and put on the bottom, best wishes and all this. And she came out ecstatic. But the next morning, even though, she said, I took it home. My dad phoned everybody for miles around. <laughs> the best, the <laughs> best <laughs> guest he had ever gotten. <laughs> that. Oh, that's so wonderful. Then it was Doug Harvey, who I looked after. Then Patrick Wall for a year. And it was when he, we had to sit on his appendix and... All the people here in Toronto would saying, hey, that's malpractice. We got all the best together. But we made it through the playoffs, and I had the tough job of getting the appendix out a few days after the season was over. Oh, boy. But uh, I had, had those people I always remember. But there's a total of 68 we did, you know, the captain of the team in Ottawa, the captain of the team in Colorado, that you name it, we did it. <laughs> so I was uh, exposed to a lot of very fine athletes, and I must say, I enjoyed every bit of it. <laughs> Finally finish it off, I got two more things to recognize that I hadn't been too bad. They, 2004, I was given the award given to the hospital for people who make outstanding contribution to the hospital. And then in, in 2009, a letter come from McGill looking very, very worrisome. And I opened <laughs> it, and I only tell you because I don't tell many, I became emeritus professor of surgery at McGill. Wow. Congratulations. So... <laughs> I had come a long way, a long, long way from the cornfields of Ontario. And uh, I enjoy being here at Humber Heights. It's great. What uh, prompted you to really like surgery? A fellow like me who doesn't like the sight of blood, I would uh, certainly stay away from that kind of stuff. That's why I am a retired radio announcer. But what is it that... Uh, brought you to the business of surgery. You know, you ask the most important person, which I ask myself much. I go back to that day that I spent with my football coach, and I really didn't have anything else I wanted to do. What advice do you have, Dr. Ray, for people around the halls, at your residence, at the village of Humber Heights, or anyone who's listening today from a man with such a storied career and life who at 87 has so many amazing things to impart? What's your advice? Well, I'll tell you one word that was a 
used in our families so often during the tough times. I hope it's going to be better tomorrow. Hope. That's what I could say to anybody who's having a bad day. And I, I have now bad days, but I hope I'm better tomorrow. <laughs> Amen. And what a beautiful note on which to end today, Dr. Ray. Dr. Ray Brown. It's been such an honor to be in your company. And Doug and I thank you. And we're just grateful and humbled. You're more humble than anybody deserves to be. But we are humbled to have you here with us today, Doctor. Thank you. I was going to say, I just kind of sat back and I savored every moment. And what an honor it's been today. I'm just absolutely thrilled. Thank you, sir. Well, it's a real honor to do this. I I didn't think anybody was interested in what I did, but oh. maybe somebody is. <laughs> One thing I for forgot to tell you is in my last year in practice, I, when I was chairman of the, of the Division of General Surgery, I'd saved all the money that was given to us, and it was about $100,000, but there was no special room for the residents. And two of the residents and I looked around the general and found a big space available looking at it on the whole city. So we worked and worked with all the powers to be, and lo and behold, we built a residence room on the 18th floor of the Montreal General for the residence, which now, interesting enough, don't know why, it's called the Brown Room. Ah, <laughs> after Dr. Ray Brown, and your hopeful outlook is right there for everybody to share as they take in the view and take a breath and then get back to the business of saving lives. Thank you, Dr. Brown, so very much. Okay, well, I hope, I hope it's not too bad. What a man. I hope you'll come back and join us again. And thank you to Dr. Ray Brown for sharing his amazing life's experiences. Join us next time when we talk with Felix Romans. At 97 years of age, he fills his days with creative pursuits of painting, drawing, carving, and sculpting, all the while dealing with a disability. We want to make sure you don't miss it, so here's what you do. Subscribe for additional episodes of Elder Wisdom Stories from the Green Bench every two weeks. We'll let you know as soon as they're up. And then just share your thoughts and opinions on social media, if you would, using hashtag Elder Wisdom to help everybody find us on this green bench. And go to elderwisdom.ca if that's easier for you. On behalf of Doug Reed, and with our best wishes always to my co-host, Lloyd Hetherington, I'm Erin Davis. Thank you for your time, and we'll talk to you again soon. Your seat on the green bench is ready and waiting. Elder Wisdom, Stories from the Green Bench, is brought to you by Schlegel Villages, a complete continuum of care, offering independent living to long-term care, celebrating and honoring the wisdom of the elder. To learn more about us, please go to our website, schlegelvillages.com.